I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. Well, I am really excited today. I've known this lovely lady, <laughs> Pam Moran, for so long. I, I just wanted her on my show. I'm so glad you are here, Pam. Oh, Barbara, it's great to be here. And, you know, just reminiscing a little bit before we started the actual recording about the days of uh, pre-Twitter and pre-the social media that we have today that lets people be so connected in terms of our communication networks. But the fact that communication networks have been around for a long time, and I think that it's uh, pretty amazing to hear that story that you told about running into a friend through a, a chat that was back in the 90s. I mean, most people today have no idea that there were things like Yahoo chats back in the I 90s. Know, well, it might even been, you know, we we started connecting at conference and stuff before that. But but uh-huh. before I go on, I'm going to just show you off a little bit. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. So you're Dr. Pam Moran. Did I say your name right, Moran? You uh, did, absolutely. I always worry Moran. that I don't pronounce things right. No, you've got it right. But I will tell you this. I was in Ireland a few years ago, and I was uh, in a school, visiting a school right outside Dublin, and I was asked to introduce myself, and I did. And the name uh, M-O-R-A-N is very common in Ireland. So I introduced myself, and these two young girls, fifth grade, uh, came up to me afterwards, and they kind of tugged on my my shirt a little bit. And they said, ma'am, ma'am. And I said, yes. And they said, we need to tell you, you're mispronouncing your name. It's Moran. It's Moran. <laughs> and I went, well, somewhere between Ireland and the United States, it became Moran <laughs> for me. <laughs> but they didn't want me to embarrass myself by not knowing how to pronounce my own oh, name. Oh, that is so funny. Well, you do know it your own name, cute. but that is really funny. Yeah, that's right. Well, you've had an unbelievable career. You served as superintendent of Albemarle. Okay. Yes, you got it. <laughs> County Public Schools in Virginia from January 2006 through June 2018. And now you serve as executive director of the Virginia School Consortium for Learning for the whole state, right? We've got uh, di- divisions, we call them in Virginia, not districts, but there are 70 uh, that are affiliated with the organization, which is uh, almost three quarters, and we touch every part of the oh, state. That's amazing. Large, small, urban, suburban, rural. Um, it's a great group. Well, I know your vision, and it's always been a clear vision of what educational experience should be for students in today's world. You, you say this, and I love it. It says, embodies the paradigm shift that must be made to make schools relevant. That's exactly what we all need to do. And so I'm honored mm-hmm. to have you here today. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. And I'm I'm glad that this is a conversational mode because it's really great to just be chatting with you and to know that last night you were without electricity and I was a little late today. <laughs> and yet here we are on the same page, on the same uh, uh, stage, getting ready to have a conversation together. Barbara, I'm, I'm honored to be here with oh, you. Oh, well, welcome, Pam. This is it's it's always been uh, you know when you, your book came out I just had I had to have you right on my Twitter chat too oh, you and Ira oh, and well, I you know it's a it's um uh, you know I I described that that writing that book was a labor of love 
that goes back to literally, you know, probably before my first day on the job as a teacher of, you know, the story of how I got there. But most importantly, to realize that every year of my career, and I finished uh, a career with 43 years, that every single year, I think that the one thing that I would say has been um, really amazing to me is to realize that if you're open to learning, every single year of your life can be filled with amazing new opportunities to learn and develop and be a part of a community that that makes things better for kids. So wow. That's what... That's where I'm at. You know, I'm at a point I've been working a long time, too. And I just don't think I ever want to give up. I'm so passionate like you are. It's that's why I guess I connected with you. Well, that's why we're lifelong learners, right? Yes. Yes. No matter no matter uh, what point in life that it happens to be. And I've got a mother who's 97 years old and uh, she's actually a World War II vet. She was in the Navy. She worked in naval intelligence. And, you know, I was on the phone with her last night for an hour. And I think about how fortunate I am that I am still able to have amazing conversations with her and, um, you know, that that she, I think, has been a really great model for me to really think about what it means to just stay open and interested in everything that's going on in life. And she's still that way at 97. And so I hope that I get that chance. Well, my mother-in-law is 97, so I can relate a lot. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and she... Yeah, and I miss my mom. So I know how you feel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, I'm really fortunate. You are. And t- what a life she had. Wow. Oh, yeah. She's got amazing stories. And she just received a congressional commendation for her work. So it was pretty pretty fascinating because, you know, my mother, one of the things that I really, I think you learned from people are one of the things that really matter about who we are. And a story about my mother that's kind of a deviation moment, but um, she uh, was in naval intelligence, actually, on the West Coast in Bainbridge, Washington, um, which is an island right outside Seattle. And she worked on helping to uh, basically break uh, Japanese code but um, during World War II. But one of the things that uh, is really interesting is that she received a medal for her work, but she was sworn to secrecy about her work, and she wasn't able to share uh, the fact that she had received this medal from the um, Secretary of the Navy at that time. And somewhere, I guess it was probably 1996, she walked into uh, the gathering of the family over the Christmas holidays, and she said, I've got something to share. And she pulls out this little box and this letter. She had just gotten something saying that it had been declassified. And so now she was free to tell the family what she actually did in World War oh II. My- and I think she kept she kept that secret for a lifetime. We never really had a real clue about what she did. She was just in the Navy. Oh my god. Are you you could write a story about her. It's a great oh story about her. Gosh. But but you know, but one of the things that it taught me is that, you know, that she was always a person that was a real you know, she's always been a person who's lived her life as that she does what she says and she says what she's gonna do. And that's, you know, we learn from everybody. And if we just continue to remember that the lessons of life really are timeless, that it helps us to be able to um, be people that even when, when you do have conflict in the work that you do, that if you come from a position of honesty and integrity and trust, what a difference it makes in terms of the relationships that you have. So 
It's one of the things I learned from her. You're putting in so many um, great <laughs> phrases that could be quotes. <laughs> I'm trying to, I was oh, going to write I them down. <laughs> that was just beautiful what you just said. You know, you you sound like you have a wonderful family. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about your family? Yeah, I sure will. Well, my husband, John, is um, um, a guy who I describe as you know, I had a family that I grew up in that was a family of makers. I spent time last night talking with my mother about the fact that she was an amazing seamstress. She could make anything. And most of my clothes, when I went through school, she made. My husband's a maker. Um, he's uh, uh, went to the University of New Mexico. And at some point, his mother realized back in the 70s, she wasn't getting grade reports anymore like we used to get when we were in college. Our parents knew how we were doing Today, kids have to give them permission. But one of the things that she said to me was, I realized I wasn't getting grade reports on John anymore. And then the next thing I know, he's making uh, jewelry for me. He had uh, gone down into the uh, um, the square in uh, New Albuquerque and was learning how to uh, work in silver. So he's got amazing silversmith capabilities. He's a, has been a guitarist. Um, he uh, is an artist extraordinaire. And he built the house that we're in. It's a t- timber frame house. And so, you know, I've grown up with this guy who also has been a real source of lessons in life for me because I was a really good student in school. John, like Ira Sokol, who's one of our co-authors, was not a very good student in school. You know, um, John would have been diagnosed as dyslexic at the time he was in school. But at that point in time, we didn't really know as much about uh, special education as we do today in terms of disabilities. The other thing that um, is really a, a part of the piece that I think is critical about John is he's been a he is a wonderful dad, and um, despite the fact that he's now wheelchair bound um, uh, because of a genetic issue, that he is still somebody who is active, interested, and um, it's so wonderful. Every day, my son calls from New York City, where he lives. He's a, a digital media creative director. And I get to hear these amazing conversations between my son and my uh, husband every day that just, you know, tells me that, you know, that life is a vivid place to be. And it doesn't matter whether you're in a wheelchair or whether you're living in the Lower East Side in New York or you're on the West Coast or you're sitting in the room where I am right now, that if we are people who see ourselves as open to learning one of the things that we are able to do is to continue to evolve and develop who we are and what we bring to this planet. And so, you know, that for me is what I think the mission of education is, whether it's inside school, outside school, wherever it is, that if we define ourselves as educators, we're constantly focused on how is it that we help our mission, what I see as the most important profession on earth, to be able to continue to have people see learning as a lifetime event and not just something that happens when you go to school. Oh, that's so beautiful. I just love to see some of the jewelry. <laughs> some oh, of the other. I'll tell you what. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you some pictures. It's really amazing. Oh, that is what he does. What a, you know, it, my husband's an artist. My children are artists. Oh, my man. mother was an artist. They've kind of 
skipped a generation. I'm a writer, but I'm and a speaker. Well, that's art. Yeah, you know, in a and, and what way. you're doing with this show is an artistic endeavor. Yeah, well, I'm constantly you know? learning from people, just like you said. Uh-huh. When I started this, everyone said, "Well, how are you going to make money?" And I said, "That's not the reason I'm doing this. If you yeah. if you make your passion shouldn't be driven by that. It should be driven by what you love, and and it sounds like that's what John did." Yeah, absolutely. He he is pretty. Um, I've been really fortunate to uh, have opportunities to learn with him and from him, and you know, just to be side by side and raising this, you know, young man that's now a creative and uh, uh, is very successful in life too. What's your son's name? Jason. Jason. Uh, Jason Moran. And he and he says it like that. He doesn't say Moran. <laughs> No, he's not a Moran. <laughs> That's but, so uh, funny. Yeah. Well, you mentioned what your husband was like as a student, and you said, "What was what was it like for you?" Well, you know, I, Barbara, it's a, I had a very different trajectory as a student, but in some ways, like you know, I had my own challenges. I grew up on a farm um, in the Low Country of South Carolina, and uh, you know, attended school there, and I went to schools that were, were segregated in the time. So, you know, that's an experience that kids today don't typically have um, in terms of it being, you know, one of the things that I learned at some point is the difference between de jure and de facto segregation. And I grew up in de jure segregation. It was segregation by law, not by redistricting or uh, the districting of schools. And so, you know, that was an experience that was a really different experience uh, because, you know, when you live um, in a place like South Carolina in the low country, you know, you grow up as part of a very diverse community. Our African-American community was a strong community and one that was very present along with the Caucasian community there. And a lot of interaction around the work that would occur on a farm and, uh, you know, the relationships that people had in terms of community relationships, and yet one that was very hierarchical. There was, you know, the that whether you were like me, a kid growing up as part of a farm family, um, if you were white, you know, as I look back, you think about the privileges that, that you have are really very apparent if you are thoughtful about the life that you had as someone as I was growing up in a very segregated school system. Um, the, the fact is that in rural South Carolina at the time where I came through school, no one had what I would call the the breadth and depth of education that you have today. For example, I went to a high school that was 8th through 12th grade. I had um, the same teacher was my guidance counselor, my uh, earth science, chemistry, physics, and biology teacher. Um, you know, we didn't even have an AP course. There was no advanced placement available in my school. And we had one year of French. And so, in many ways, it was a very limiting environment in terms of the opportunities compared to what kids have pretty much anywhere in the country today, uh, in some cases by virtue of virtual learning. Um, People have access, and we did not. We had some good teachers, but I had a lot of teachers that had not even finished uh, four-year colleges because we had teachers at that point in time who had gone through what was known at that point in time as the normal schools which were schools that um, were not a bona fide four-year college, but it was where people went to learn how to become teachers, and they might not have had um, a full complement of coursework associated with a, a four-year degree. 
So, um, you know, it was a different world. I had a teacher, the teacher that I mentioned that was my science teacher, who also was the school guidance counselor, Miss Hires, was an incredible influence on a lot of kids coming through. She was a real encourager of look at, at the opportunities that, that you may have available that uh, will take you beyond the, the boundaries of our little county. And so she was very encouraging to me when I was in biology in 10th grade to really think about, she asked me two questions. One, have you ever thought about majoring in science? You seem to really love biology. And I had, you know, was an outdoor kid and loved um, the the outdoors on the farm where I grew up and everything that was there, wild animals in the woods and snakes and, and uh, uh, amphibians and, you know, everything and anything. And I hadn't really thought about it, but all of a sudden I realized I do really love science. And then coupled with that, she said, have you ever thought about being a teacher? And so I went off to college at, at a small liberal arts school in, in South Carolina called Furman University and ended up really doing what I think you would call almost a, a put together of a biology program that was really oriented around field biology. I did a lot of work in the outdoors uh, with a teacher that, that really was an ecologist in the 1970s before a lot of people knew what that word meant, but had been really, he had been really inspired by Rachel Carson's science, uh, Silent Spring. And so as a result of that, we uh, connected and I really became very involved in science. And at some point as I was uh, thinking about what I was going to do next, which was either to chase snakes in the Everglades or chase a guy to the University of Virginia, I ended up coming to Virginia um, versus uh, uh, going on with a master's in field biology and uh, ended up teaching in uh, Virginia and ended up at the University of Virginia and, and did a master's and a doctoral degree there, but got led um, into education in the workforce side by side with an amazing mentor, um, a guy who was uh, had been in the Peace Corps, then moved into education, and had that sense of mission about um, equity at a point in time where nobody even used the language of equity. He had a real belief that all kids deserved incredibly rich, authentic, deep learning experiences. He was a real believer that we should be doing a mastery approach to learning and that, uh, you know, he was one of the folks that introduced me to the, uh, the terminology of that learning should be constant and time should be the variable and that uh, we shouldn't accept less than quality work from kids. And so, you know, he was a proponent of um, of mastery. We, uh, in the middle school where I started teaching, we were expected to build our lesson designs around Bloom's taxonomy, as well as our assessments, and to be able to give kids the opportunity to uh, have more time if they needed it to master the things that we were expecting them to learn. I also ended up in a classroom where I had no textbooks. We had um, were doing an inquiry science program. And so I had to learn to build instructional models in that classroom without relying on a textbook to carry the day. And so it's kind of a unique experience in the the 1970s, but in many ways it framed who I was as a learner for life to have uh, been in that situation. Well, you know, it's interesting how Mrs. Hires knew that you wanted to be, that a teacher would, you'd automatically or eventually end up being a teacher. 
And then you found a mentor. What I found from a lot of people that I've been talking to is that there was that one teacher or there was somebody out there that really believed in them and saw that spark that, that you have and that passion. It just came through, especially I just want to let you know, my husband was a biology major and is a, was a, yeah, was a chemist uh, at the local Uh um, water treatment, you know, uh, district. And uh, I, just a little to let you know, I started um, my career as a dental hygienist. I was into science, loved science, and then became a teacher of dental hygiene. And that's when I went, what am I doing? I love teaching. So we all kind of do our own little diversions and trying to find out who we are but you you built i mean biology another thing is uh we used to be birders in the audubon society oh wow <laughs> so, you know yeah it's, it's amazing so, uh, it's so cool you know but but the thing i think about is that you know we all we all are in positions to be able to pay forward what we've learned from the mentors in our lives whether you know, it's it's the influence that my mother's had, you know, who was a very strong um, woman um, who really modeled for me that women could do anything that we set out to do equally as well, if not better than men <laughs> in our lives. Um, and that, um, you know, and that 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 was, you know, th- that influence, the mentorship, you know, having somebody that said to me, you know, part of being a really great educator, whether it's that it's a teacher or as an administrator is really being able to facilitate in others and to support others up through looking at their strengths versus looking at their weaknesses. And John used to say to me, my mentor, he would say, you know, kids never grow from you telling them what's wrong. What they will grow from is you reinforcing what they're doing that really um, comes from their assets and their strengths. But if you focus on what you see as their weaknesses, what they will do is to not be connected with you as an adult, you know? And so now you learn from, you learn from all of those people inside and outside of school. And if you, if you take those lessons of life and put them together, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, you know, when we talk about learning as being timeless, that, you know, the, the same kinds of skill sets, the same kinds of things that we say that, that, People need to be successful in the days and ages of AI and smart technology were important to people 10,000 years ago, you know, that the tools change, the times change, but the reality is problem solving and logical thinking and ethics and integrity and, and all of the things that make humans work well as communities, really, whether it's through a learning lens or a political lens or a social lens, those things are what are woven into the fabric of what it means to be human. And sometimes we venture away from that. And when we do, that's when we tend to find out that if community isn't working, it's because we're not focusing on the roots of what makes us successful as learners and then as learners together. That we are truly better together. You're so yes, I love that. Better together. And it's interesting you brought up, I mean we look at Plato and Socrates. And I mean, they mentioned some of the things we're talking about now. It's not. And then we got diverted during, uh, what what is it? The first industrial revolution when they needed industrial workers. So we're coming back. We're all starting to see this now. And we're, I agree, you know, and, and, uh, you know, we, uh, we humans, um, 
I laugh. I just, you know, sometimes talk with Ira about the fact that he says, you know, the human brain was not evolved to be a really good reading brain (laughs) that, uh, that we humans, you know, baked into our DNA is that learning really comes through avenues such as storytelling and the arts and movement, mentorship, apprenticeship, you know, all of the things that, that, uh, people do around the the fire, or they do at the watering holes when they're sharing some new thing that they've discovered how to do. But that what we've done is that in order to be able to process print language, print numbers, etc., is that we've created constructs that some kids get really good at figuring out how to do some of the things that we really value that kids do well in school. But a lot of kids really struggle with it because the natural avenues to learning have been so subtracted from schools, particularly, you know, I won't get on my No Child Left Behind soapbox in terms of, of what I see as some of the damages that were done to our country for something that I think that people felt like that they were doing something with a purpose of good. I mean, I don't think that, that people that set out to build you know, No Child Left Behind set out with the idea of we want to create situations that uh, fail kids. But I think that we ended up, as a result of going through that process of trying to build an accountability system that actually worked to create failure versus create success. And that's because we subtracted out of our schools so much of the opportunity that kids need in order to become people who can handle print can handle numbers in ways that are much more tied to, um, oh, I would say, uh, non, um, that the complexity of learning gets lost sometimes when we try to program or recipe learning in our schools. And learning is a complex venture. You brought up, uh, you know, how I feel about No Child Left Behind. I mean, that's one reason why it became so passionate and started doing consulting because I felt like, yeah. uh, especially I worked in the Oakland public schools here in California and saw so many kids drop out and fail and, and there's just too many things that we had to change. But what I um, see the other issue is we have a lot of teachers that were brought up in that system. Oh gosh. I, you know, I worry about that. Yeah. And, and even administrators. So there's this idea of people being compliant is really important instead of Mm -hmm. understanding that that didn't work. We need to really change this and look at getting uh, everything that you just mentioned, bringing in the ideas of uh, critical thinking and problem solving and being a little skeptical about some things. So I'm, I'm with you. I mean, we're, I'm steering off of some of the questions I wanted to ask you, but I love this conversation and the way it's going. <laughs> well, isn't that the way conversations are supposed yeah. to be, you know, and, and, you know, and, and bring me back in at any point, but I think it is very relevant that, you know, that when I look at um, the, the impact of No Child Left Behind and schools frenzy to be able to try to avoid the adversive consequences of No Child Left Behind, they started started subtracting some of the very uh, activities from schools that have kept kids connected and engaged and helped them to build the background knowledge that they need to be um, people that can process through some of the things that we expect them to learn. And so 
you know, when you look at the data on what happened to support for field trips, I mean, museums took a huge hit um, back in the day because of the fact that um, that uh, people felt like time on task meant we can't take kids out for recess. I mean, think about how many school systems across the country eliminated time for kids to have recess or they cut cafeteria lunch blocks down or they uh, took out field trips and uh, activity-based science disappeared. Um, librarians were taken out of libraries and libraries were shuttered in places like California. And then the arts disappeared. And you couple that with the recession era that we went through that was just six years after, you know, if you think about that, we really started down that recession path in 2008 and we had just started No Child Left Behind in 2002. Those two events together have had significant impact on uh, the schools in this country in terms of uh, um, curriculum and uh, teachers' sense of empowerment as well as kids' capability to have access to the very things that middle-class kids are going to get by virtue of their parents, that a lot of our kids in poverty lost opportunities during that same time period. And gaps widened. Gaps widened, and even middle middle uh, America. Um, there were so many things that I saw that happened that um, I said, we got to fight for this. We got to figure out. And it's it's starting to come back, but then there are some other issues. And that's why I wanted you on this show to really talk to you about some of the ways you did this in, I got to say it again, Albemarle. 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 You're getting there. Albemarle. There you are. uh, County Public Schools, because you did a lot of this there. Well, and and the the goal that we had um, was, you know, that that, um, we really believe that rich experiential learning involves multiple pathways. It's like you were saying earlier around a journey that people take different paths to sometimes get to the same um, destination. And if our destination is that kids graduate from high school and they're able to walk out across that stage and off the stage with a diploma in hand, that's only the first step of kids really having an entry point into adulthood. And I'll never forget one year, you know, and this kind of was a wake-up call for me. You know, you get these every now and then. I was at, the, at one of our graduations, and a group of kids um, came running out after graduation, and the adults had come out ahead of them. So we were all, we'd always be there ready to greet them and uh, just, you know, congratulate them on, on their graduation. And this group of kids stopped, and we're talking about kids that, you know, had done well in school. And they looked at us and said, what do we do next? And I laughed and I said, pretty much anything you want to, as long as it stays within the law. But what struck me is that kids should never run out of their graduation and turn to adults and say, what do we do next? And I think that's one of the biggest issues that we have when you look at college that pretty much standard across the United States, 50% of the kids that go away to college end up bouncing out at the end of their first year and they may come back to community college or go, you know, back home to kind of figure out that that maybe they really needed a gap year or uh, they just didn't know where they were going to, what they needed to do. But one of the things that I think about is that we have never done a very good job, at least in my generation, of providing kids with transitional experiences to help them become adults 
we don't have, high school's not a really good rite of passage at this point in time because most of what kids do is in ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade is they take classes and the classes may get more complicated, but they're still sitting in classes, a lot of them in a lot of schools. And then we expect them to walk off the stage in May or June of their senior year and walk out into a life and be successful. And then when they're not, we're mad at them for not being able to be successful, but it's really not their fault. It's really that we haven't done our job as adults, whether it's as parents or as you know educators, of giving kids a transitional experience. And you go back to the concept of timeless learning, you know, rites of passage are an important part of growing up. And that means gradually releasing responsibility to kids and having them get the opportunity. As my mentor used to say to me, kids need to make mistakes. In school, mistakes should not be life, exp- uh, life sentences. Mistakes should be learning opportunities. And we need to give kids opportunities to do things where they get to test out and try out how things happen in a way where there are natural consequences that if you, if you, you know, are using a power tool, you know, if you don't follow the rules, you may end up, first of all, screwing up your project. The worst case scenario is that you end up chopping off a finger. You know, you want kids to not chop their finger off, but you want them to have experiences where, you know, think about all the kids today that lost the capability to learn how to use tools and shop classes that now are in apartments and homes all over the country. They don't have a clue. How do I, if I need to drill a hole in the wall for some reason to make a repair or to put a picture up or whatever, you know, they don't, they don't have the skill sets because we subtracted so many things from our schools that used to give kids some opportunities to learn the kinds of competencies that transition you into adulthood. You mentioned competencies and skills, and, um, you know, that's something that I'm really excited about. I did some work with Rose Colby. I don't know if you know Rose, but (laughs) on competency-based education. And and the idea of Virginia, you put together an, an amazing profile of the Virginia graduate. That's right. And, That's right. And, and I think it has yeah. all that woven in. Those life skills yeah. are so important. It is so critical. And, you know, and whether a kid's growing up in Virginia in uh, one of our, our small rural counties or whether they're growing up in Fairfax and trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to prepare kids to go to work at Amazon? The reality is that in a day and age where, you know, as some people are starting to refer to this as the smart age, uh, smart technologies, smart tools. Um, The reality is that our human experience and learning um, through our human pathways to figure out how to be able to be uh, good communicators or creators or, uh, you know, critical thinkers, logical, you know, able to to think with logical reasoning, to be able to, to use language in ways that that says to people, this is what I really mean here. This is a precise way of communicating. To be able to plan and conduct research. All of those things that humans do are as important in a, to a kid who's growing up in a rural area as I did when I was a kid, as it is to one who's growing up in 
an area where there are thousands of cyber jobs open, and that's Northern Virginia. So, you know what I found that what is really interesting is that it's like this movement now across the country with the profiles and understanding yeah. that we need um, to build in those learning experiences, the transitional experiences that you mentioned. But high schools are having trouble doing this because they get the kids in from middle school and they're not ready for it. So we have to start earlier. Much. Yeah. So let's talk about this timeless learning Okay. Okay. So, you know, so the thing that, that we really, we really believe and, you know, and it wasn't just the three of us who authored the book together. It happened that the two authors that, that were with me came to Albemarle to work there very specifically on this work. But there were a lot of educators that have been engaged in it and working on it for a number of years. And so, um, you know, what we really did was we tried to build a narrative that uh, basically brought in and wove together stories of a lot of educators and kids in Albemarle who have been a part of what we ended up labeling for the book as being timeless learning work. Um, and, you know, that's maker work, it's project-based, it's um, uh, interactive, um, it uh, conceptualizes that kids need to be able to get access to whatever tools they need in order to do the work that they're setting out to do. You know, that, that it needs to be a place that really is about kids and not about the adults, that we are there to facilitate the kids as learners. They're not there to facilitate us as teachers. And so, you know, one of the things that, that's, um, you know, I think a real, a real focus of it is that when learning is timeless, when you're taking advantage of whether it's kids around the campfire working together on a project and we had a group of kids uh, two years ago that worked uh, across three high schools on a mental health project and convinced, convinced me to put it in the budget that we needed to increase our commitments to mental health services in our high schools. But they didn't stop with me. They went to um, uh, one of our, our legislators that represents Albemarle County, convinced him to get them to the legislature. They got to make a presentation to a committee that then took what they had to say and turned it into a bill to put mental health services, increased mental health services and focus in the, the state curriculum into place, voted it into law last year. And when I was talking to one of these kids, literally again on the day he graduated from high school, and I said, so what's next? He said, oh, we're not stopping. We're only one of two states in the country that actually has formalized mental health services as part of their high school curriculum. The other's New York. Our belief is it should be in place in all 50 states. That's our goal. Oh, my god! We're off to college. Oh. You know, and so <laughs> you think about you've got kids that do that. You've got kids that are inventors that literally um, have have things that, that are getting patented. You've got kids that are selling their music on, on uh, uh, iTunes. You've got kids that are out there creating businesses before they get out of school. That is something that when I, when we talk about timeless learning as being what people have always done to find their passions and to be able to do the work that um, allows them to both take care of their families, to be able to be members of a community, to be able to be contributors, whether that was 1800 or whether it was you know, 400 AD or whether it was 10,000 years ago in some little tribe, uh, you know, living on the banks of a river, 
that humans come together and they leverage their skills and their competencies together and they all figure out where do I fit in a way that allows me to be a contributor and to find some success here. And that's what I think we started to see, you know, with our our kids in high school, our kids that we would have never seen. They would have been kids that would have either been invisible or maybe dropout. All of a sudden, those kids started looking like pretty amazingly talented human beings because the pathways that they had access to allowed them to uh, be able to make moves in ways that that school traditionally does not allow kids to move. Oh, Pam, I hate to end this because it's we're going to have to have you come back and talk about every one of I these kids. I would love kids. to, I mean, but I do think... I do think that you also are going to be having one of the other co-authors at some point yes. who can maybe take some of the threads from this and you can take it to a different place with with, with him. I definitely will because I already scheduled it with Ira. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yes. I mean, I love your book. It's just a wonderful and we'll definitely put, we put a blog post together. You and I will be doing that. because We, we, will, we will do that. Yeah. And Barbara, I will tell you that if there's ever an opportunity, I'd love to be able to uh, come to California and spend some time with some folks out there. We were there um, uh, at Ed Fusion and then with a group of superintendents back in the early fall. But one of the things that I find is that people are really hungry to get back to this kind of work. And so it's kind of a back to the future. The tools are different. The paths may uh, have more complexity to them. As uh, Dave Cobra House says, we, uh, we're living in that VUCA world, that volatile, unpredictable, uh, complex and ambiguous world that's today. But the reality is kids are kids and learning is learning. And if we can create those spaces for all kids, then we're going to really, I think, make a difference in the lives of kids in terms of their happiness quotient, their competency quotient and their commitment to seeing themselves as learners for life and not being just glad they're out of school and done with the learning. So that's what I'm after. Well, um, I'm on the same path as you. I have an extra room here. You're welcome. Let's, let's, <laughs> All right. let's start this movement. Let's do it. Yes. Let's do it. Oh, Pam, thank you so much. This, All uh, right. this was wonderful. It's been a delight. Uh, it's been a delight. Uh, it, it's been an honor. So thank you and honor is mine <laughs> to, to have been with you, Barbara. Oh, it's really great. This, so well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Dr. Pam Moran. Look for a complimentary blog post on my website about Pam, where we pull together resources and links for you. You know, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, but we'd love a review. And you can also subscribe to my website, which is at barbarabray.net. That way, you receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.